Okay, it's time to start. Last week, got uh, a fairly uh, aggressive goal of finishing this today. It's possible, though, it's, it's, but uh, we're going to have to move. So let's go ahead and get started with prayer, and uh, we'll, we'll get going here. Lord, we're thankful for your grace, for your goodness. We thank you for uh, the entire plan that you have for our universe. Thank you that you are uh, carrying it out flawlessly, without without error, uh, without misstep. Lord, we thank you that we are a part of it. Lord, we ask that we would understand it better. We might better fit into what your expectations are for us as individuals and as a church. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, we were just, we were really basic, we were finishing up last time uh, this discussion of the church's relationship to the kingdom. So uh, if you weren't here last week, a real fast run-up. Uh, we, uh, we mentioned that the church and the kingdom are not uh, they're not synonymous terms. Uh, the kingdom is uh, related very tightly to Israel. Uh, the uh, kingdom that is coming is going to be a predominantly Jewish one by all counts in the scripture, uh, both in the Old and New Testament, especially in the Old. I mean, that uh, comes up quite profoundly there. We found out details about the kingdom its material uh, aspects, it's, uh, you know, there's meteorological, and there's geological, and there's political, and there's social, and all these, all these elements to the kingdom. And all of these things, we said, uh, really don't find their fruition today. They, they just don't match uh, the present, uh, present day. Uh, but we did say there is something of a relationship that the church sustains with the kingdom. We looked particularly at Colossians 1.13, that uh, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. And so, you know, many would say, okay, there's, there's rock-solid proof that we're in the kingdom now. And uh, I can understand, uh, based on that verse, where, where one might might think that fairly readily. But as we noted uh, the parallel passage in Ephesians, we have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Uh, we, we don't translate that at face value. We're not in heaven uh, presently. We don't look around us and see heaven. And I think that there's room within the, 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 uh, the understanding of this passage in Colossians to suggest uh, that we have been guaranteed a spot in the kingdom, just as we have been guaranteed a spot in heaven. Uh, and, uh, you know, even more than that, not just a, a legal guarantee, but actually Paul seems to view it as already accomplished. It's so certain it's already that uh, he can use past tense uh, to describe it. So a uh, term we used was proleptic, a proleptic understanding of the kingdom and of heaven. We're there already in the mind of God, at least in terms of the certainty. Uh, we also said that the, the church, uh, when the kingdom actually uh, blossoms uh, in, in all of its fullness, the church is not going to be you know, distanced from it. Remember early dispensationalists had said that, that, uh, the, that the church was the heavenly people of God, Israel was the earthly people of God, and there the twain shall meet. Uh, they, they, they just sort of, you know, chug on into eternity and never really have any never have any contact with one another. As we see that it's not really uh, what what the, the case is because we are assigned as 
as church members, as, as, as the church, something of a, of a regal role. Second Timothy, if we endure, we will reign with him. We will judge the world. We will be given the right to sit on the son's throne, just as he overcame and sat down on his father's throne. Uh, so there will be something of a regal role uh, that the church will sustain with the kingdom. They're, they're, they're co-regents. Uh, they're, they're part of the governing class, if I can put it, the nobility. Uh, and, and struggling for a word because we just don't see the term used. But the, uh, but the ruling class of the kingdom. Israel also has a prominent place, but apparently not ruling. They're, they're the priestly class, if I can put it that way. They're the priests for the nations. Okay, so they're a, they're a kingdom of priests for the nations. And so that seems to be their role. And then there's the rest, which, and we said it is important that there be a group of people that be governed. Okay, we can't all reign, everyone reign, because there'd be nothing to reign over. And so we suggested that the rest of the nations will, uh, be, uh, will populate the earth as the, uh, as, the, as the balance of the population. Okay? And we also see you know, uh, impl- implications of this in the, uh, in the uh, marriage. We, we find that the marriage takes place in heaven. Uh, after, after, the, after the church is removed, uh, there's a marriage that takes place in heaven. And then... They, you know, there's, there's the, 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 the king and his bride come together to earth. But there's other people, okay? There are the friends of the groom. There are the virgins. These are these attendants uh, that go along. And, of course, it may be that this is just all symbolic, you know, trying to, trying to create something of a, of a wedding picture. But it, but it makes sense that we actually have groups of people. You know, the people who come to the feast. It's not just the bride and the groom. There's attendants, uh, both of the groom, the groomsmen, the friends, the friends of the friends of the king, the friends of the prince. There's also the uh, there, there's also the uh, the virgins that will attend the, uh, uh, the the bride, and then there's a whole host of people that are invited to the feast uh, that are not in any of those categories, uh, which would would seem to be the constituency of the kingdom as it dawns here. Okay? Now, the, the, the tension that we have here is that uh, um, when we look at the passage, and in fact, we sort of drew this up here, there's a, there's a question we have to ask is, okay, what do we do with the passages in the New Testament that seem to relate the church to the kingdom? Now, last week, we went through a whole stack, probably about eight, ten different verses, uh, that suggests that the kingdom is future. In fact, not just that the balance of the kingdom is future, but entry into the kingdom is future. Uh, if we if we endure, an entrance into the kingdom of God will be provided for us. And so we had we had we had about half a dozen verses that that suggest that the start of the kingdom comes after uh, we die and 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 move on. Uh, so uh, that. And so we have a set of passages that seem to say that we're not in the kingdom. Tonight we have to look at the opposite set of verses, a set of verses that seem to suggest that we are in the kingdom. Can't be both. Uh, so, so we have to look at these. And again, what we suggested here is when we ever, we, whenever we do systematic theology, there is something of a back and forth, a tug of war that sometimes occurs between our exegesis, we have to be faithful to what the text says, 
And then coherence. The, the system has to make sense with itself. It can't have logical contradictions in it. Okay? And so that and 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 based on that, we we adjust either our exegesis or our system. And so we're we're constantly struggling with it, trying to harmonize the text in a way that makes good logical sense of the passages, all of them, and also makes sense as a system without contradiction. So now we have to look at this other set of verses, which uh, have, you know, Westman has been bringing these up uh, much of the uh, semester here, verses that seem to suggest that the church is now in the kingdom or is a, if I can say a mystery form of of the kingdom, some some sort of a, and not not a complete uh, manifestation of the kingdom, but some sort of a partial uh, yeah, mystery form of the kingdom. So let's look at those verses and see if we can't uh, 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 harmonize those with the passage with the with the rest. Okay, so first, uh, Luke seventeen twenty. It's a, a verse here. It's often cited here. The kingdom of God is within you. Uh, what, what page are you on? Uh, 63. So a, I've got A through G points. Okay, so there's a, there's a verse here, uh, Luke 17, 20, that says the kingdom of God is within you, uh, which, of course, is, the, is really a favorite of the amillennialist position that says that the kingdom, the physical kingdom as described in the Old Testament, has been completely replaced with a spiritual kingdom that's in people's hearts. Okay. Uh, the problem with that understanding of this verse is that Christ isn't even speaking to believers. He's speaking to the Pharisees, uh, which he goes on to suggest, you know, these people are not believers, and yet Christ says the kingdom is within you. And uh, if you take a look, depending on what translation you have in front of you, uh, the, uh, the passage uh, is, can be translated, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And uh, my suggestion is that what uh, Christ is saying is, I'm the king. I'm offering the kingdom to you. Here it is. It's right here in your midst. If you'll only uh, receive it, it would dawn immediately. Uh, But they wouldn't. Okay, so there's a verse that seems to say the kingdom is a spiritual one. I'm not sure that the uh, exegesis sustains that. Matthew 13 the mystery form of the kingdom, right? After uh, the event in which uh, the the leadership of the uh, Jewish people had had credited the miracles of Christ to Beelzebub, or uh, you know, a, a representative of Satan, uh, Christ enters into a stark new chapter of his ministry. I mean, it's it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's like there's a hinge. Uh, in uh, Matthew 12 and 13. Up till this point, there's been a tremendous number of miracles, tremendous number of of demonstrations that this, in fact, was the Messiah, invitations to join him. And, uh, and, And what seems to happen here is it comes to a climax. Okay, leaders of the Jewish people, do you accept me for who I am? And the answer is no. You're an agent of Satan. And at that point... Uh, there's a there's a there's a hinge in the ministry of Christ, and he begins to speak in parables. Okay, of course, there's this whole exchange here. That the disciples say, "Why, why in the world are you speaking in parables?" Uh, the people are starting to leave. This is you know this is not a church growth technique that's working. Uh, so so and, and what's what's Christ's answer? Well, because 
to you has been given uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the Holy Spirit that will be that causes you to have a heart to hear, uh, uh, ears to hear, and eyes to see, and a heart to understand uh, what uh, what my message is. But to these people, it's not. They're they're following me in order to get their stomachs full. And that's not what I can. I didn't. I didn't come to spend enormous amounts of divine energy uh, to fill people's stomachs and you know heal people and feed people. As good as those things may be, that's not my primary purpose here in coming. And so he's effectively chasing people away. In fact, he uh, cites a passage in, in Isaiah and in Deuteronomy to that effect. I'm giving these parables to chase people away. Um. Except for those who had the uh, eagerness and the willingness to probe further. What what are you saying? And the disciples uh, was that group. So he, he concentrates then on this smaller group, this group of disciples, those who recognized him for what he is. And in fact, it's just a couple of chapters later that the question is asked to Peter, who do you say that I am? And what's his response? Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And so he said, okay, you have got it. The leaders of the Jewish people didn't, but you do. And in fact, uh, the rest of the disciples follow suit as well. So these are the people that Christ concentrates upon. And one of the, and what happens immediately is he starts to give these parables of the kingdom. And he calls them the mysteries of the kingdom. Now a lot is, a lot rides on that word mystery here. Uh, what is a mystery? Well, some would suggest that, that he is saying, okay, the kingdom's going to take a mysterious new form. And that mysterious new form is going to be the church. Uh, I've not been inclined to think in those terms, although even some dispensationalists think and in in, in, in use that kind of language. The, the actual word form isn't there. It's just as I'm giving you the mysteries of the kingdom. I'm going to tell you how the kingdom program of God is going to unfold. And as I understand it, he's basically setting up the fact that he is going to go away and there's going to be an extended uh, establishment of a people of God, a constituency for a coming kingdom. Okay, um, And that's how I understand the church be related to the kingdom. They're building a kingdom constituency, but they are not properly the kingdom itself. Okay, We've already looked at Colossians 1.13. There's no sense in looking at that a second time. So we'll skip that and uh, refer. Excuse me, what yeah. was the uh, verse in Ephesians on the, the cross-reference? 2.6. Another group of passages uh, that we have to uh, speak to are the fact that in the book of Acts, including all the way up to the very last chapter of the book, we find that the apostles are preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Which, again, seems to suggest that they are saying, hey, embrace the kingdom. Now, there's, there's a, if you take a look at the, uh, at the uh, commentaries, there's, there's, there's all kinds of understandings of this. Uh, some, Alba J. McLean, for instance, suggests uh, that there is a reoffer of the kingdom, that God gave the Jews a second chance. If they would only accept the... Uh, the kingdom that they would have, they could, they could have it established immediately if they, if the Jewish people. I, I just don't see that myself. Uh, although it's, it's, it's something he maintained. Others would suggest that he's saying, okay, the kingdom has changed. You can join the kingdom now. Uh, again, my, my, again, my, my system, which can be tweaked as much as my exegesis. My king, my, my, my system, in order to make it coherent, 
seems to make good sense of the possibility that he was he was simply explaining to a Jewish oriented people of God that the kingdom program had changed things have changed and, uh, and and you need to get in get in line with the new program not necessarily saying that if, if the kingdom the con if, if the idea here is that the gospel of the kingdom means you need to join the kingdom then the church is the kingdom uh, but I'm not sure that that's what's being uh, said Peter given the keys of the kingdom Matthew 16 in response to his confession of Caesarea of Philippi thou art Christ the son of the living God he has given the keys of the kingdom and it seems like he that uh, he employs the keys of the kingdom to unlock progressively uh, the progress of the church from Jerusalem where he preached at Pentecost to Judea as he steps out uh, to Samaria, where he actually is giving the uh, the gospel to those who are not even uh, a full Jews, to the uttermost parts of the earth, and of course his 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 uh, connection with Cornelius. He seems he seems to be sort of on the forefront of opening up these chapters of early church history. Um, and if those are the keys of the kingdom, then the church must be the kingdom. Um, and again. Uh, that certainly is a possible explanation, but if, if I'm understanding here, he's he's uh, progressively unveiling the mystery of the kingdom, the unrealized inclusion of various non-Jewish people groups uh, to the world. Romans fourteen seventeen, a statement here: the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Maybe a similar verse in 1 Corinthians 4 as well. Uh, and, and, and we look at that and say, okay, if we're not in the kingdom, why does this have any significance for us? Okay, And if I, if I can give my quick explanation, I think what Paul is trying to say is you need to have an eternal focus. Okay, So while, while he has people here in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian people who were very concerned about meats and proper eating and drinking and clothing. His answer is, you know, you get your head up out of the sand. Have eternal values. Because these are not the kinds of things that will dominate the kingdom. It's not so much as a statement of time, okay, you're in the kingdom, so think about kingdom things, but rather think of eternal values. Think of the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and uh, have priorities uh, like he would expect you to have. So that's my understanding of that verse. Along the lines of the Sermon on the Mount, saying these are kingdom values that, yes, they're yeah. possible right now in your own strength, but these are the type of things that you should be aspiring to, right. the type of ethic. Right. Yeah, it, and just as he says, your kingdom come. Uh, we're, we're supposed to be thinking in terms of longing for the establishment of the kingdom and having eternal kingdom values in view of what's coming. Not so much a statement that you're in the kingdom now, so so uh, act like it. And then finally, we have a series of passages. Uh, in Hebrews, Revelation, etc., that show that Christ is already on the throne. So if he's on the throne, the kingdoms must be running, okay, if he's, if he's, if he's on the throne. But as, uh, let me see, there's four points here that I think perhaps suggest uh, 
uh, that we have to be careful before we jump quickly to that solution. For instance, Revelation 3.21 says that Christ is on his Father's throne presently, and there will be a day when he will assume his own throne and will share it with church saints. Okay, so there appear to be more than one throne going on, and it makes sense. We've talked about that, you know, even with this whole thing. I mean, there's the throne of the universe, in which God's always sitting on the throne of the universe. He's always the sovereign of the universe, and Christ is the sovereign of the universe. That's not the same as saying he's sitting on the Davidic throne and governing the messianic millennial kingdom. Uh, there's, there seem to be more than one throne uh, that uh, we have to pick from. And just because Christ is on a throne now does not necessarily mean uh, that the kingdom is ongoing. Uh, we also find that uh, there are there's a distinction between God's throne and David's throne. That's described in Psalm 29, 93, 110, uh, Hebrews 1, uh, Hebrews 8, 1. Uh, so we have we have a, 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 an understanding that there is a Davidic throne that Christ is going to occupy, which is different again from the throne of the universe. Um, God's throne's in heaven. David is on David's is on earth in Jerusalem. Uh, so so there's a different location. And then uh, Psalm one ten is sort of a capstone verse here. The Lord said to my Lord, these are the words of. Of David, if there's any messianic psalm in the in in the messi in in in, 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 the, in the psalms, this is this is the one that nobody debates. You know, this is a messianic psalm. David is speaking of two lords. Okay, he said, uh, he says, the Lord says to my Lord. Okay, and if uh, I don't have it rep- uh, shown here, but if you have if you have one of those translations that has the capital L-O-R-D, the first one's a capital L-O-R-D, because that is Yahweh. Yahweh God says to Adonai, my Lord, uh, and, and the idea here is God is speaking to the king, David's Lord, so someone who's above David, yet not God the Father. The Father says to this Lord of David, sit at my right hand until I make your your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then it goes on. Then your scepter is going to go out and you're going to basically squash everyone who has any any sort of uh, uh, enmity towards you. And then it goes on to the glorious explanation of the reign of Christ. Okay, And this passage is one of the most cited in the, in the whole of the uh, of the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's cited several times. And the idea here is that Christ is on high, sharing the Father's throne, until such day that the enemies of Christ will be made a footstool for his feet, at which time uh, his scepter will go forth, and he will have his own throne, his own kingdom, uh, seated in Jerusalem. Okay, so... I know it's I know it's quick, and I I didn't give a lot of time for dialogue for each one of these. But there's I, I, as I look at these verses, I'm not convinced myself uh, that these verses come to the level of saying we're in the kingdom now. Um, and again, I think the strength of the other position is that they say we haven't even entered it yet. So, uh, any thoughts on that? <clears throat> I I would just like to read. 
that Romans 14 sure. passage. Because, yeah. And I think the New American Standard, which I was reading in, because actually that's where I'm coming up with these verses. I'm reading mm-hmm. through the Bible and uh, right now, and and, uh, and it, it seems to say it more strongly the NIV does. Uh, I have the NIV with me. Okay, going back to verse 15. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Okay, and I'm not going to read the First Corinthians. I don't want to read that one. But the thing is, is in having studied recently with my kids language arts, there is a tool of, it's called the interjection, okay, where you have a topic, but you interject something else in the middle of it, okay, but to show that it's, that it's tied into it, and especially reading the New American Standard, and especially Romans uh, 14 and, and 1 Corinthians 4, I just cannot see how there is not in some way a present spiritual aspect of the kingdom in operation. Because that just doesn't make any sense. Even even with your explanation, Mark. I mean, and that's a good explanation, but I don't think that's the force because I think it's just... the. It makes sense to me, the most sense to say the kingdom of God is right now. I mean, because the king, you don't do this to your brother because the kingdom of God isn't 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 just right. this. It's it's these other things that are more important than just the eating and drinking, which is essential to life, but more important than that. And and yeah, to have a heavenly view, to have an eternal view. Okay, I guess you could explain it that way, but just you know, it it seems to me to have you know First yeah. Corinthians First uh, Corinthians uh, uh, four and Romans fourteen that interjection of the kingdom in the in the midst of another topic, just saying yeah. to me that saying because the kingdom is right now and you're and you're in it in a spiritual aspect of the kingdom and you know don't violate that. Yeah. But that's what. Yeah. I, yeah, and, and and I appreciate that. I mean, that's a lot of people are on you. So it's not like you're in bad company here. It's like you're standing all alone on the side. In some ways, I'm the one who's sort of standing alone. But if I could if I could give a comparison, you know, I've got a I've got a 13 year old son. And, you know, sometimes he's he's rude and he's crude and he's junior higher. I mean, what do you expect? Um, uh, and and you know, sometimes you'll say to him, "Hey, David, don't act that way," because you'll never keep a job and you'll never get married if you keep acting this way now he's not looking to get married right now in fact he's not particularly concerned about girls and he doesn't have a job at the same time I can say to him hey a career and a good marriage depend on you getting your your behavior into line with societal mores and expectations. 
Okay. So I see something like that here. Okay. That, right. That's that's an excellent that's an excellent illustration. So. And I use that kid. I tell my I tell <laughs> people in high school, hey, when you, few right. years from now you'll be going out to the job force, you act like that. And you're right. telling your employer will tell you there's the door. Yeah. And so so I'm looking at I'm looking ahead and saying, yeah. you know, if you don't shape up, this is going to be the consequence. That's a good so that's 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 I guess that's sort of how I'm looking at that verse. Okay, well that's good. I could understand. <laughs> so, so yeah, and, and 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 granted, we have to we have to look at the if 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 all we had was these verses, the you know this A through G point, I, I I would say we've got an awfully strong case for the kingdom being present and so forth. The problem is the uh, the verses on the other side, and and we've got to sort of weigh which ones have the exegetical strength to withstand the assaults of the other side, and which ones end up having alternatives that seem to work. And so, and, and we can come up with different conclusions. I don't, I don't consider you outside of the kingdom, so to speak, yeah, just because you, because you think in those terms. But, uh, but, but that's, that's sort of where I fall. We just want, just one last question, Nate. With, with, your, with your position, with your system, the thing is, is as as I understand, you know, as I've seen, I mean, just obvious that salvation. When you're talking about soteriology, salvation, salvation yeah. has a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Okay, is not the kingdom? It's not possible for the kingdom to be to be present and future because I definitely hold to that future aspect of the right. kingdom right. tenaciously and. And vehemently and zealously hold to that millennial kingdom and look forward to that physical, actual political rule of the man Christ Jesus ruling earth from Jerusalem. Yeah, and, and again, like I said, there's there's a lot of people who would opt for for an explanation like that. I've not been personally comfortable with that because of the way kingdom is defined in the Old Testament. It doesn't doesn't seem to have that. This is the idea that it can be reduced in the present age to just the spiritual benefits, and then the material benefits will be later. It doesn't it doesn't seem to be a concept that can be sort of split up that way? But like you say, there's, there's a lot of folks thinking those terms. So, okay, yeah. it's very popular to speak of ourselves as Christians in vogue right now as kingdom people. We're doing kingdom work. We're you know proclaiming kingdom truths. Would you, would we as, and I'm going to put myself in your, because I'm, I'm more or less where you are, like, do you just avoid that, or do you try to use it and redeem the term? Yeah. I mean, it, there is a way to redeem it, I think. Um, because there is a sense in which Matthew 13 is telling us that the kingdom program is such that we are building a kingdom constituency even now through evangelism. So we are, in that sense, I think, doing kingdom work. Usually, when you hear that language of uh, we're doing kingdom work, it, it, it ends up being something like a, okay, the kingdom is has all these elements of, of social reform and, and, and political reform and, and uh, even in, industrial reform even, that when we're doing kingdom work, we're not just, you know, Getting the gospel to people, but we're doing this holistic project of bringing the whole of the kingdom to fruition, and that's and that's the, that's where I have the hesitation. And I think 
we're the ones being consistent. I suppose they are too, because if they really are reading all of the Old Testament, not in a literal sense that this is, you know, the earth is actually going to be to morph into something, you know, a different flora and fauna arrangement. But if you're spiritualizing a lot of that, it does make sense going from the Old Testament, even through Jesus' ministry, to see, you know, physical ministry as a big part of our mission. But if you go by more of what the epistles are saying, laying out the mission of the church in this age, it really does exclude, by and large, the type of social work outside the walls of the church. Right. And so, and so, I mean, it's a very neat division. I think it's it's it really makes sense if you believe that the kingdom is in some way present. You're going to be empowered more to to bring those Old Testament, you know, ministry of Jesus type of ministries now. Is that, right. I mean, would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And, and and it brings to mind that passage in Hebrews six, probably one of the one of the more controversial passages in the Scripture. It appears that you can lose your salvation, you know. Uh, uh, and, and, it, and it says here that there are people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, Jews, who have, and there's a whole list of things, they have, they have tasted the power of God, they have, and, and one of the statements it says, they have seen the, uh, uh, the powers of the age to come, okay? And as I understand that, what the, what they're, what they're, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, those of you who lived through the ministry of Christ and responded to him, because here he is offering the kingdom and doing these miracles, these powers of the age to come, and you responded, if you and, and, and you, you, you had a positive response, if you fall away, then you demonstrate that you really never bought, bought into what, what he was offering. And he said, there's no room for repentance. Remember, that's, that, that's the whole statement. So, so when I say tasted of the powers of the age to come, I understand that to be, they saw the miracles of Christ. These are, he's the, he's the king, offering the kingdom and the powers of the age to come, doing these miracles that would, that would be appropriate to the kingdom. They respond, uh, in, in some sort of at least a, 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 a surface way, you know, they, they respond, this, this guy's got something going. And if they then say, no, I think I've changed my mind, then the author of Hebrews says, there's no more place for repentance for you. You just better be very cautious. Don't fall away. Would you relate that? It sounds like almost like you're relating that to the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. Like, yes. both intensely or in, in, inextricably linked to Jesus' earth and ministry. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Because that's exactly what happened in Matthew 12, right? Why am I do, why, why do you think I'm doing these miracles, these powers of the age to come? Well, you're doing them not in the power of God, but in the power of Satan. And so here, here are eyewitnesses of the miracles of God. They have some sort of an initial response, an initially favorable response. If they happen to fall away, there's no place for repentance. They, they're in the same place as, as you know, the Matthew 12 people who have committed the unpardonable sin. So, uh, yeah, it would tie them together. Okay? A couple of quick questions, and then we'll then we'll jump into salvation, which I think will go fairly quickly. Uh, so we'll, we'll do what we can. Uh, does, the, does the distinction between Israel and the church last forever? Uh, well, the short answer is, yeah, I think it does. Um, 
it's hard to, and that and that's one thing that a lot of uh, the uh, non-dispensationalists really balk at, that there is still some sort of an inequality, an inequity uh, within the people of God, even in eternity. But Rome, Revelation 21 seems to suggest that. Uh, in the New Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, verse 12, there will be angels, they will be Israelites, still subdivided into 12 tribes, so those distinctions are maintained. The Gentile nations, the other nations, verse 24. And then possibly even the church is represented here by the, the apostles in verse 14. That's, I think that's debatable here. Uh, and then uh, in verse 3 it says, these will together comprise, plural, the peoples of God. The Latwe. Okay, the peoples of God. So even, even in the eternal state, there seems to be a distinction between Israel, the church, angels, uh, all within the, king, with the, within the eternal kingdom of God. And they're called here variously the peoples of God. And not just the one sort of monolithic people of God. Uh, they're called peoples of God. So that's, that's my understanding. Again, some would say, well... You know, the distinction is maintained to the end of the millennium, but then once we get to the eternal state, everybody's sort of the same. Um, it seems to me in Revelation 21 that there's a case to be made that those distinctions uh, persist. And again, it's not that they're, that any one group is less valuable than another. Like, you know, if you go to a, you go to a wedding and you happen to be a groomsman and somebody else happens to be the bride and somebody else just happens to be there to, you know, for the food, uh, are we are, are we looking at them and saying one of these, some of these people are more valuable than others? No, I don't think so. Uh, each one has their role and their function and their place, and uh, that's how I understand the uh, the whole of the uh, the eternal state to be. Each one having their own function. Yes. Well, remember, in the millennium, uh, there will at the beginning of the millennium, there will be a, a large, uh, a large conversion both of Gentiles and of Jews. Now, we a lot of concentration. Yeah, at the end of the tribulation, there will be a number of, and, and they're not properly the church because the church, the church is already so so. Where do these fit in? Well, they, they populate the kingdom in their natural bodies, uh, which is which is why then you can have at the end uh, a rebellion. Well, they're kids; they're natural since they're in their natural bodies. They would have children, and these people would have a rebellion at the end of the planet. Yeah, because uh, everyone who gets into starts into the kingdom is a believer. So how do we get a rebellion at the end? Well. Okay. I'm going to skip the next section. You can read it. The question is: Do we have to give special treatment uh, to the to the Jews today uh, because of uh, because of their special place in the eternal plan of God? And my answer, fairly, if I can put it fairly quickly, is is no, I don't see any need to 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 look at the king, the, at the nation of Israel as currently arranged, and say that this is a special people of God who is that can do no wrong. Okay, uh, they yes, they're these 
God will return again in favor to these people uh, at the same time. It does not seem that missiologically or sociopolitically that we have to, you know, treat them with kid gloves and give them special treatment even if they do, even if they're, even if they're evil. You just put them on the level of like Great Britain, like a traditional yes. democratic ally. And, and always with the realization in the back of my mind that, you know, these people are going to survive, so <laughs> don't, don't try to take a position up against them where you're going to annihilate them. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. Uh, at the same time, I don't, I don't see us having, okay, because they're Israel, we have to stand by them no matter what they do. Uh, it, it seems like we treat them as any other, as any other nation, uh, and, uh, and and we can even sometimes, if necessary, be the agents of, of divine punishment on on this group of people. And then missiologically, I don't. Again, some some would say because in the early church they went to the Jews first. That uh, you know when we're when we're going out to give the gospel, if you're going to be a missionary, you have to find the Jewish community first give them the gospel, and then go to the Gentiles. Um, I don't see that as some sort of an act of mandate here. Um, I don't mind if you go to the Jews, but I don't think there's any priority that you have to give to them. Uh, that was, I think, within the, within the unfolding of the church, that's the way it was, that the apostles first gave the message to the Jews, and then they expanded from there uh, to the Greeks. But I don't think that that's necessarily a pattern for the church in perpetuum, that we always have to go to the Jews first in a community and then to the Gentiles. Yeah. Not to get off on this, because mm-hmm. I realize we're, we're moving on, but going back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, about the blessing, I, I, you know, and I know Bob, uh, uh, your other teacher here, and, uh, McEwen, yeah. Anyway, uh, he, you know, I even said, you know, did it, you know, is like World War Two, you know, the, the the bombing, the devastation that that Germany got, you know, at, at the hands of the Allies. I thought it was simply, you know, God's tool. We were simply a very effective tool in God, in God's hands to wreak judgment because they cursed, they cursed, they cursed Abraham's seed, and so they got cursed at hard. And he said, no, that with, with their rejection of Christ, all bets are off. And I, I, I don't see any, any caveat there, any dispensational caveat there. I, I still think that we're still, you know, required to bless them, whatever bless means. Yeah, I guess that's not, the question. And not to curse whatever curse means. Yeah, and, and perhaps that's where But obviously Nazi Germany was cursing yeah. his seed and... You know, I think they got hammered because of it. Uh, certainly, that certainly they got hammered because they were evil, vicious people, and uh, and <laughs> thankfully the the uh, good nations of the world handed it to them. Whether it was specifically because they went after Israel, to me, is a little bit undefined. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> it is interesting that. You know, if you if you take a look at, at some of the rhetoric that brought Hitler to where he was, was Lutheran, okay? Because it, it, Germany is predominantly Lutheran, right? Well, I don't know if it is anymore. It's probably pretty much agnostic now. Uh, but Lutheran 
Lutheranism was dominant in Germany, and the idea that the that those Jews killed Jesus, and and then you know he turned to us and, and made us his favored people, means that we really just need to get rid of these Jews. They're they're the people who killed Jesus. We have to get rid of them. And so that that's where some that's where a lot of the hatred was brought up against the Jews. It was it was it was made a religious kind of thing. Christians against Jews because Jews hate Christ. And so that that's part of the uh, part of the rationale that was given. Yeah. So it it, it was an ugly situation, and and thankfully, uh, God's providence, uh, the. Uh, the uh, forces of evil were repelled. Whether it was because of uh, the uh, treatment of Israel, to me, is still a little bit up in the air. Okay, quickly here, let's talk about the uh, uh, about salvation. And again, I, like I said, I'll, as I as I've said to my seminary class a couple of times, uh, we're not going to get to eschatology, and to me, it's not a big deal. <laughs> Because I don't think eschatology is the heart of the dispensational system. It is an, an implication of the system that is, is neat, it's cool, it's interesting. Um, at the same time, I don't see that as the centerpiece of what the system is. So the fact that we're not getting to eschatology or the doctrine of end times is not, to me, a big deal. And again, you can tell all your friends that you took a class on dispensationalism and never even talked about, <laughs> about end times. Because I don't think that's the, again, I don't think that's the, the critical issue. But let's talk one uh, last here about the relationship of dispensationalism and salvation. And the question here that we need to address, and, and, and we'll have to do it in something of a cursory manner, is this. Do dispensationalists say that people get saved one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament and the church age? Okay, And there is good reason to think as you look at some of the writings of the dispensationalists, that some dispensationalists have thought this. Okay, for instance, here in the, the famous statement here in the Schofield Reference Bible here, in the New Testament here, the point of testing is no longer legal obedience as a condition of salvation, but the acceptance or rejection of Christ. Okay, so Schofield, see, I mean, it's... Uh, I, I mean, there's a lot of people say, well, he didn't really mean that. Okay, well, that's what he said. Okay, and so we, we just we just live with it. Um, I, I don't know if dispensationalists are thinking in those kinds of terms today, but he said it. In the Old Testament, how did you get saved? The condition of salvation was obedience. Today, it's not a condition of salvation. The means of salvation today is acceptance or rejection of Christ. Okay, so... It is unfortunate to use those terms, and we do have that, you know, sort of black eye in our history. Uh, but if I can put it that way, it's in our history. Okay, um, let's talk about what dispensationalism today and for the last century has taught, and and it's and it has not been uh, that you're saved uh, in in two different ways. Okay, so how is it that we are saved? Uh, in the uh, in 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 the dispensational model, well, if I if I if I can if I can put it this way, um, we are saved in every age by faith in the promises of God that find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, 
That's how people in every age are saved. Abraham believed God, and it was counted and credited to him as righteousness. How did he get saved? He believed the promises, the promise of of God, part of which was a seed that would bring salvation to the to the world, um, and he believed this, and God counted it, credited it to him for righteousness. Now. Did he understand all the details about Jesus Christ, that he was going to be the virgin-born son of God uh, who would live a sinless life, die a perfect death, uh, hang on the cross, be put into the grave, stay there for two days, rise from the dead, and ascend up into heaven? No, he didn't know that. But he believed in the promises of God, promises of God that we discover as the Bible unfolds, find their fulfillment or yes in in Jesus Christ. Okay? So what is the difference then between the Old and New Testament saint? And I say it's this. Basically, it's content. Okay? So how much did they know? Okay? Uh, Today, in order to be saved, you have to believe pretty much everything I said about Jesus Christ. You know? Um, You have to know about the virgin birth, but you certainly can't deny it. Uh, and, and, and be a believer. So all of those things about Jesus Christ have to be believed, understood, believed, embraced as true in order for us to have a, to have a, an appropriate relationship to with Christ. Did the Old Testament saint have to believe all of those things? No, because he couldn't have known them. Okay, so how do we, how do we say this? Well, uh, covenant theolo- theology, uh, with its essential denial of progressive de- uh, revelation, actually maintains that all saints were saved by believing in the same content in every era. In fact, I've got this. I've got this statement here. If I can find it, I thought I had a. I had a statement here by. Uh, well, uh, here, here's what uh, John Gill says: Abraham believed in Christ, the Lord, his righteous. He believed him as the Savior and Redeemer, and he counted it to him for righteousness, not as the act of his faith, but the object of it, and not the promise he believed, but what was promised. And his faith received even Christ, his righteousness, justified as all believers are, by the righteousness of Christ revealed to faith and received by it. So he had to, re- he had to believe all of that. That's a good question. Uh, Charles Hodge, the Redeemer is the same in all dispensations. He who was predicted as the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the branch, the servant of the Lord, the Prince of Peace, is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God manifested in the flesh. He, therefore, was the from the beginning has been held up as the hope of the world. The same Redeemer was revealed to them who was presented as the object of faith to us. Now, perhaps there's a little more room for... Uh, for uh, you know, a, a gracious reading of that, but it seems awfully strong. Um, here's John Gerstner, which is perhaps the strongest. The faith of the Old Testament believer, however hazy it must have been with regard to details, can be meaningfully described as faith in Jesus Christ. The only way the dispensationalists, excuse me, the Old Testament saints knew Jesus Christ, and the only way that dispensationalists will clear themselves of the charge of teaching multiple ways of salvation is by resting in the solid rock of the teaching that saints in all dispensations do believe in Christ and in him crucified. Old Testament saints must have believed in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I think the appropriate answer, 
I ask the question is, well, how could they possibly have known? It hadn't happened yet. Nor was nor were the prophecies such that you could have constructed it. No, they didn't believe in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They believed in the promises of God of God to the degree that they had been revealed. Okay? For Adam and Eve it was there's going to be a seed. Okay. What does that mean? In fact, uh, there's there's a suggestion made that, that uh, um, when Adam said called his wife the mother of all life, uh, uh, that he was expressing faith. Okay, you're the source of life, and that and that's that's his expression of faith. That's all he knows. He doesn't know the details about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He just knows that Eve is somehow going to be the source of salvation for the world. And 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 in fact, there's a the, the statement that Eve makes when Cain is born. Uh, sometimes uh, is suggested that this is her expression of faith. I have received a son, the Lord. Now, your translation doesn't say that, but it has the little slanty words because there's there's added words here. Uh, and most translations say, I have received a child with the help of the Lord. But realize that, that with the help of the isn't there. It's it's quite possible that she was saying, here's my solution. Here's, my, here's the solution to my sin problem. It's found in Cain. She would be mad, badly mistaken if she thought those terms, but it would have been a, a, an appropriate expression. I'm going to produce the solution in some sense. It's going to be a seed that comes from me that there's going to be a solution to our sin problem. Now, it wasn't Cain. It wasn't Abel. It wasn't Seth immediately, although Seth was the progenitor of the line that culminated in Christ. Uh, but uh, but how, how were the Old Testament saints saved back then? I believe the promise of God. And that's, and that's the extent of what they believe. So what's the difference then? The content of faith. And I think also perhaps there's a difference in the expression of faith. Okay, uh, how, What does faith look like in the various dispensations? Well, I think it would have looked a little bit different for, uh, for Old Testament saints as for New Testament saints. The Old Testament saint would have said, okay, if I'm a believer... I have truly embraced the promises of God, then I'm going to obey the law to the best that I can. And when I, and when I fail, I'm going to go and offer sacrifices uh, to God uh, in accordance to with what he tells me to do. And that would have been what sanctification looked like. Well, in the New Testament, sanctification doesn't look like that. What, what, what does sanctification look like for us? Well, we believe in Jesus Christ, and what should we do? Well, we should... We should obey the... I mean, there are laws of God given to us in the New Testament. Things that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to join a church. We're supposed to participate in the, the rites and ordinances of the church. Uh, we're supposed to be evangelistic. Now, these, these are things that the Old Testament saint would not have done as a result of his faith. Not, so, so, so the expression of faith, the outworking of the faith, might have looked a little bit different from dispensation to dispensation. But the core is the same. We are saved by grace through faith in the promises of God to the degree that they have been uh, revealed to us uh, in, the, in the progress of Revelation. Would you go so far as to say specifically the promises of redemption? Because a Jew could have believed in the promises of a future kingdom 
Yeah. I think they did, a lot of them. They looked forward to a kingdom. They believed yeah. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah about, you know, being this, this people of God, ascendant. But you'd have to limit it somewhat to the promise, the redemptive promises of God as fulfilled in Christ. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It, it's hard to know how much they would have differentiated between those two. I mean, I, I mean it's just a tough question to know how... Whether they were actually saying, okay, there are kingdom promises and there's redemption promises, they were probably at least, they were sort of at least, you know, you know bleeding into each other in some sense. So it's, it's uh, you, you make a good point, at the same time, it's probably don't, I don't have a clean answer either. So if you hear someone say, oh, you dispensationalists believe that there's two ways of salvation, I hope your answer is no, we don't. If we believe the same of the uh, the idea of, of of salvation by grace through faith and the promises of God, although the expression uh, may differ from from age to age, the the, the essence of, uh, of of how one is saved uh, is, is is changeless. Okay, so that's four pages rather swiftly summarized there, um, and we'll leave eschatology for your own bedtime reading. Um, have uh, insomnia. Any final questions or thoughts? Good. Minute and a half. In eschatology, just just to say this, wouldn't wouldn't the big <clears throat> disagreement? Well, would would the would the would the biggest disagreement in eschatology because of what we believe would be the rapture or would be the millennial kingdom? Well, I think. I think it's sort of tied up in both. I, I, I think the millennium is is better established exegetically. I think the the case for the for a a pre a pre pre millennial second coming is a stronger one than the case for the pre tribulational rapture. But I think in both cases, the strength of the argument is is, is theological. And it's one of those things where. You want the Bible to say something, you can sort of twist it to say whatever you want it to say. And because we understand, as dispensationalists, that the church has a track and Israel has a track, and that the tribulation is a track, is, is part of the Israel track. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of, of, of tribulation, uh, unlike any other on my people, Israel. Right. That that is something that would be expected to be for the Israel track, and the church track is going to be, you know, up in heaven. They're going to be removed. And so there, there's something of a theological expectation of how it will unfold. And I think there is, I think there is exegesis, there, there is biblical argument that, that, that undergirds the pre-tribulational and pre-millennial position. At the same time, I recognize that a lot of my argument is theological. I expect it to be that way, based on everything we've talked about through the course through, through the course of this this semester. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, our time's up. Thank you for a good semester. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.